Hello, my name's Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And it's our favorite time of year. It's Shocktoberfest! Oh! Woo! I guess I'm a howling wolf as well. <laughs> aww, aww. And uh, we're going to be doing James Whale today. And we have a very special guest, John Semley. Hello! John Semley, who are you? Well, Sell yourself like a job interview. Well, I would say that I'm foremost uh, a big fan of the important cinema. Oh, oh thank you. Oh, um, not just a contributor, but a fan. But uh, I'm a journalist. I write about films for McLean's Magazine and the Globe and Mail and some other places. Uh, but pertaining to old Jimmy Whale, uh, <laughs> I suppose my expertise is that I'm a big fan of his and I teach a class on horror movies at U of T uh, where I teach... Uh, Bride of Frankenstein, which Ooh. is, I think, Whale's masterpiece. You probably get a lot of dilettantes coming into that class, right? I don't know if you could be a dilettante when you're 18. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> are we going to get more emails, Will, about people being like, I can't believe Will used the word dilettante in the podcast. Oh, come on. <laughs> um, I mean, I get some people, I get students who will come during final paper time and be like, I don't know what to write about. Like, well, there's, you know, 20 suggested topics plus an option of creating one of your own. Like, well, I don't really find anything scary. I don't really like <laughs> oh, any of the films. They're just numb the world. These are some pretty big kids, right? They, <laughs> yeah. They don't get scared easily. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. They're fully grown. Um, but no, I mean, a lot of people like it. The people who tend to not like the class are the ones who are, like, super hardcore horror fans who already know everything to the point that they've exhausted their fangorias and are already looking at <laughs> academic literature around horror films. Mm. Uh, and that's... That's the pits, the academic text about horror films. Well, there's so much. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, Men, so, women, and chainsaws. Mm-hmm. Why did you pick Jimmy Whale as his friends like to Jim, call him? Jimmy Whale, come on. <laughs> well, Show him a little goddamn respect. Well, this is an interesting point that you raised because uh, born 1889 in the black country in England to a working class, super working class family, probably would have been Jimmy Whale. Um, Fair enough. But by the time he got to Hollywood, I'm sort of eliding part of his life story here. Uh, he sort of reinvented himself as this super classy uh, cigarette holder fop style Oscar Wildean construction. Um, and I like James Whale, A, because I really like his movies. I think he's a very talented, stylistic director. Uh, he's best known, I should say, for working in the sort of universal monsters mode in the early 30s with Frankenstein, The Old Dark House, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein, stylistically, just an incredible movie, I think. Mm. Uh, and he's also just an interesting guy. Like, he was this, again, this man who kind of remade himself into this large than life figure he was publicly out uh as a gay man and i think a lot of that stuff is in his movies especially bride and frankenstein as i'm sure we'll talk about also i should say he died in a pool his life is like sunset boulevard (laughs) and there's there's like a lot of fake mystery around it like oh did a lover murder him what happened to james whale but probably he just committed suicide i would think Mm -hmm. but yeah his body was found fully dressed in a swimming pool so we watched Bride of Frankenstein and uh, The Old Dark House. And I also watched uh, Frankenstein Part 1. So did I, because yeah. I hadn't watched it in a long time. Mm-hmm. Bride of Frankenstein, Will. Great movie. One yeah. of my favorites, hold, hold I might up. even go, go as far to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had seen it a long time ago and really loved it. And watching it again just a few days ago, it's like a perfect object. Mm. I don't oh, yeah. think anything really needs Except to be Except maybe for that opening scene. No, uh, no, no. I love that opening house. scene. Yeah. Look, I love it. It's great. <laughs> Uh, it's it's a little 
I don't know. Okay, if I may put on my... It is uh, very gay. Yeah, I mean, if I may put on my uh, academic mortarboard here. Uh, so the opening scene, if you haven't seen the movie, is uh, Mary Shelley and her husband and Lord Byron sort of sitting in a drawing room. And Mary Shelley has just finished telling the tale of Frankenstein. And the men are like, well, surely there must be more than that. Um, <laughs> and this is based on a real thing. I mean, these people used to sit around and tell ghost stories uh, during the Victorian times. But anyways, there's a point where she cuts her finger and blood starts coming out and the two men get all afraid. And they're like, oh, it's just a bit of blood. Uh, which there's already like menstrual anxiety like okay. 10 seconds yeah. into the film. Uh, so from there, I think if you watch Bride of Frankenstein these days, it almost plays like a John Waters movie. Like it's so, <laughs> maybe nobody was thinking about it at the time, but it's so obviously camp. Uh, well, definitely in the character of a, what was his name, Dr. Dr. Pretorius, yes, who says, wouldn't it be grand if we could do away with the women altogether? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to start just by addressing uh, the first Frankenstein. I feel like I'm probably the last kid who grew up watching these movies. I never watched, my parents never showed me Universal Monster movies. I think I liked the idea, I wanted to see horror movies, but I was too scared to see real horror movies, so this is pretty much all that was available to me mm -hmm. uh, under those circumstances. So I know that for a long time as a kid, I had a certain aversion to Bride of Frankenstein, believe it or not. Because it was too scary compared to Frankenstein? No, because, because, because like it was... women, ew! Uh, well, that, of course. But, <laughs> but Take your pick. <laughs> it sounds of it, yeah. But also just because like the first Frankenstein is so deadly serious. And I think as a kid, I was a little weirded out by the fact that the second one was so like funny. Um, I was which is a stupid thing, but that's, I was a kid. I was surprised watching uh, Frankenstein this time of how kind of shaggy the movie is. Mm -hmm. Because its mythology is so known in the public consciousness that the movie itself, kind of the beats you expect, are a little bit shakier, I guess. Like, when the monster is finally brought to life, it's like everybody's in the room with Frankenstein and he basically just flips the switch and that's yeah. it. I mean... There are some things in that that I admire. I mean, the, these sort of weird hacked together editing rhythms, not unlike the monster himself. Uh, the sort of way that Whale uses the, you know, expressionist light and shadow. And like, you got to remember, I mean, these are films that are coming out, you know, two, three years after there are talkies. Mm -hmm. um, and Frankenstein, 1931's Frankenstein, not my favorite movie of all time by yeah. stretch. But I think if you compare it to the thing that sort of kicked off the universal monster trend in that phase, which would be Todd Browning's Dracula from, I believe, a year earlier. I think it's miles better. Definitely. I mean, the Browning yeah. movie just looks like sort of a bad play that's being filmed that is leavened slightly. I think Bella anything Lugosi. that's good about that is Lugosi and, and also the Carl Freund cinematography. Right. Uh, I think, yeah, Todd Browning. Yeah, yeah I feel it's a, a very kind of widely held opinion now is that the Bela Lugosi Dracula is pretty on the boring side. Yeah, uh, I think another thing that I like about the original Frankenstein is it feels like the only Frankenstein that uh, isn't weighed down by a lot of irony or sort of postmodernism. Uh, it feels like it's the first Frankenstein movie, and it feels like it takes the subject matter deadly seriously. Uh, I was a little surprised watching it this time how little happens in it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the stuff uh, that happens at the beginning of Bride and Frankenstein is actually in the book. Um but yeah, I mean, to get to that film, I guess, just so tonally different. And in horror sequels in general, any sequels, I suppose, yeah. I always like the ones that are trying to do something totally different, but do it just as well, like uh, Aliens mm -hmm. or Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, uh, these films that aren't sort of hewing to the tone. And I mean, even The Old Dark House is another movie that's very funny. I yeah. mean, it's a horror, and like Whale was really good at this. He had sort of a light touch sensibility towards what at the time were regarded as these sort of 
stately, gothic, mannerly mm-hmm. literary sources. The other thing that I guess is interesting about Bride of Frankenstein compared to the first one is um, to use the parlance of the theorist Robin Wood. Mm. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein is the progressive horror film, whereas the first one is the reactionary horror film. Sure, yeah. Uh, let's. Should we explain that? Yeah, do you want to? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So, uh, according to Robin Wood, who's a Canadian critic, uh, very smart guy, one of the best film writers ever, probably, um, the reactionary horror films are sort of the ones that reassert uh, the staid conservative values of the day, uh, and the progressive ones are ones that offer views of something different. And I mean, to talk about a view of something different, in Bride of Frankenstein, you mentioned the character of Dr. Pretorius. Uh, he literally is creating men and women as homunculi in jars and trying to create a whole order of gods and monsters, as he puts it, uh, that is away from, oh, God, it sounds so academic, the heteronormative, <laughs> uh, you know, heterosexual, straight world. Like, he's creating another order that has nothing to do with it where you don't need male-female copulation to create life. Um, so in that sense, I suppose, it is kind of radical and campy. And there's also a scene where it's implied that uh, Frankenstein's monster gives a blowjob. Can I say a blowjob? He, he, he gets a blowjob from right. the blind guy. The right? blind guy. He's, he's sort of a <laughs> Frankenstein's monster sort of happens upon this old blind uh, Catholic hermit monk in the woods when he's on the lamb. And they uh, become friends because he can't see that Frankenstein's monster is repulsive. And at the end, they sort of fall into bed together and the, the monk priest friar's head sort of goes into his lap while whale like zeroes in on a crucifix <laughs> so it just it's little touches like that where you know it doesn't surprise me that this was like going over the heads of the lemleys and like pre-code universal studios but i have to believe that whale knew what he was oh, doing oh for sure my other favorite scene of the movie well first of all bride of frankenstein uh, picks up literally seconds after the first Frankenstein ends, Henry Frankenstein, who for for some reason he's Henry, not Victor. (laughs) Henry Frankenstein uh, has sworn off creating monsters and is going to... For 10 seconds. (laughs) Yeah, for 10 seconds. I was a little bit shocked at how, like, um, quick... Uh, Frankenstein realizes what he's doing is wrong in both films because like instantly in Frankenstein he's like you know what I'm getting married I'm sorry let's forget this so there's a scene early in the movie when his uh, his fiance Elizabeth uh, is by his bedside and he wakes up and he goes I did it I did it I created a man and she convinces him he shouldn't do that but then a few minutes later Dr. Pretorius shows up at the door which I think leads to one of my favorite scenes in movie history which is when he start he starts saying, oh, yes, my business with Henry is private. <laughs> and I, I, I can't quite say what else. I can't remember everything else that happens, but it basically involves him shooing the wife out right. and trying to trying to get Henry to, like, give in to his urges <laughs> to create life. Yeah, I mean, Pretorius, again, is this, like, hyper campy, you know, caricaturedly gay man. Mm-hmm. I mean, not explicitly in the film, obviously. But, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but um, we gotta talk about Boris Karloff playing the monster. Yeah, he's good. What do you want? <laughs> Come on! Well, I mean, <laughs> to, no, to seg into the, the old dark house, I mean, the thing that I love about it, it's so hard to find. I mean, luckily someone uploaded it on YouTube in yeah, like, well, a garbage file, but when it starts, there's a title card that it's like, uh, <laughs> the actor playing the mute servant in the old dark house is none other than Boris Karloff from Frankenstein. We tell you that because you wouldn't be able to believe that he would be 
so versatile otherwise, but he literally just plays like a shuffling mute manservant <laughs> who over the course of the movie gets like progressively drunk and starts running amok in this house. Uh, it is entirely believable that it's Boris Karloff, except yeah. for his f- facial prosthetics, I suppose. Yeah, The Old Dark House is actually a movie that was lost for like decades until Curtis Harrington, who we talked about on the Nicholas Reffin episode. Oh, did we? Because they were friends together. Okay. Uh, found a print of the film at Universal um, they didn't own the rights to distribute it. And he's like, you guys need to remaster this. And even though that he did do that, it's only available on a shitty Kino DVD that's long out of print and yeah. goes for like $80. Yeah, I guess for even though James Whale has had a movie made out of him, I guess he's still not enough of a brand name to... Well, I mean, none of his other movies are really available. So like other than the horror ones. Well, you know what was just restored is uh, The Road Home from 37, which was a sort of sequel to All's Quiet on the Western Front that he made. It's about these German soldiers returning home from World War One, and they can't assimilate into society, uh, it ended up being radically cut and changed basically so it could play in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is after the sort of Lemleys started, stopped running Universal Studio and bankers kind of took it over. And at that time, you know, Germany was a huge market. So it's like, we can't alienate them. Let's take out all this stuff about Germany being bad. But it was recently restored. I saw it at the Berlin Film Festival in February and it was a great movie. Like an amazing mm. movie. And I hope that it comes out on DVD or Blu-ray. That was supposed to be one of his most personal films too, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. How, because he That's served, the way the gods and monsters position. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I think that it was personal in the sense that he felt that he was really typecast as a horror director. Mm. We should state for the record that the original Frankenstein made something like $12 million. So anyone is under the illusion that Hollywood has only now learned to become like a disgusting business-oriented remake and franchise machine could look to that. So then they just kind of put him to work making all these horror movies. Uh, but he was a POW in World War One. He served, uh, he was in a German POW camp, and that's where he actually became interested in acting and directing, uh, which is a hilarious thing to think about, that these guys are POWs, but he's putting on, you know, seven brides for seven brothers <laughs> or something in the camp. Um so it was personal to him in that sense and in the sense of the post-war experience. But at the time, nobody wanted to see this harrowing movie about the realities of the post-war experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it works really nicely in its restored form. Despite the fact that um, he was typecast as a horror director, his career has a lot of interesting detours in it. The fact that I guess he had his big break in the West End and then one of his first gigs in Hollywood was that he did the dialogue scenes in Hell's Angels, mm-hmm. which yeah, I haven't seen. Movie. Uh, apparently it's very bad. Yes. <laughs> well, he got a sort of the West End directing Journey's End, mm-hmm. uh, another World War One story. Uh, and then when he came to Hollywood, they wanted to adapt Journey's End. So they said, who better than James Whale to do it? Uh, that, I believe, it was that or Waterloo Bridge got him on a five-year contract yeah. with Universal. Uh, and he chose to do Frankenstein mm-hmm. because he wanted to. He thought it was like a great source material. Uh, but then after that, he was kind of under his thumb. That's the other thing I like about Bride of Frankenstein, too, is he really resisted wanting to do it. Uh, he did not want to make another horror movie. So I really like this idea that's like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to make it as sort of weird and queer uh and put as much as myself into it as possible. Like, I mean, he's one of those classic cases of an auteur in the traditional sense, Mm -hmm. of someone making very kind of rote, machine-made cinema, but distinguishing themselves within that. Friday Frankenstein was the real Gremlins 2 of its day. Sure. Oh, good good comparison, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so the old Dark House. Had you seen this one before, Will? Uh, a long time ago on a on a VHS that I mm. rented. Yeah, I remember. I think when I saw it too, a long time ago, I was like, "Where are the ghosts and ghouls in this movie?" <laughs> or a gorilla running around, which is all these old Dark House movies had led me to expect. Yeah, which is not what it was because it was based on a play, wasn't it? I believe. Uh, yeah, based based on a play. I forget the name. It's not the or like a novel novels. even. But uh, you know that that was really popular. Yeah, and it's a, it's another thing where it's you know so a bunch of people show up to an old country house in Wales who are lost in the rain there's sort of this odd family there there's a thief on the loose and his sister I believe or wife who's super religious Boris Karloff is there as the mute manservant we're like oh whatever you do don't let him have any booze (laughs) Um, so it it actually in that sense to uh, pause for a second this sort of drunk gothic thing I think sets a nice tone for The Shining The Babadook (laughs) all these movies that sort of dovetail uh, being an alcoholic with sort of gothic tropes Um, and then it kind of, and I know I just mentioned this movie earlier, but it sort of reminds me of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, you have this, like, old man upstairs who's stuck in a bed. You have this kind of weird brother character who's being, like, locked up. Uh, so, yeah, it sort of reinvented the gothic to be less about spooks and yeah. ghouls and gorillas running around and more about sort of psychopathic people trapped in a situation together. Mm-hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is actually a really good comparison that I didn't even think about Thank you very I was much. watching it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why one of us is teaching a class yeah. and us two losers. <laughs> I thought it was a great comparison. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, so did you find it was effective, Will, when you watched it this time? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, both times I've seen it, I was kind of caught off guard by the sort of, by the particular type of humor. Mm. Uh, it's It just has a general kind of askew tone to it. A view askew, if you will. Oh, God. It's <laughs> in the universe. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but there's and there's some really great camera work in. I mean, there's a scene where the, the female lead uh, goes into a room to get change, and she's kind of being reflect refracted off all these mirrored surfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I I watched it like as Will said when I was a kid on a VHS. I rewatched it as like a YouTube bootleg. Yeah. Uh, so in all honesty, it was quite difficult to tell what was a clever use of like gothic. <laughs> yeah chiaroscuro lighting and what was just a muddy transfer from the VHS but it is very moody and there are scenes in like hallways and these sort of uh, stately rooms where it's incredibly dim atmospheric uh, but again with that sort of weird sense of it's not ha ha funny no it's kind of like smile and nod funny yeah or just a just a general kind of like uneasy funny i love the physicality that's present in both bride and old dark house and just the characters and the way that like the action beats that happen because they're pretty insane like bride of frankenstein starts with a woman being thrown to her death right down (laughs) into a pit and if i had seen that as a kid and i don't really have any memory of seeing bride that would have really disturbed me because it's an innocent person being killed on screen. Also, if you want to talk about the inventiveness of Whale a bit in the action scenes, you mentioned how the sort of construction scene in Frankenstein is so boring and he flips a switch and there he is. The construction scene, or like the She's Alive scene sequence in Bride of Frankenstein mm. is incredible. Yeah, that's I the mean, one that you think of when you think of yeah. like them coming to And it's like, yeah. I feel like you're watching like Spun or something. There's so many cuts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which was not a thing that a lot of people were doing in 1935, you know, having 10, 15 cuts mm-hmm. uh, in a sequence so you know it it feels like kind of the apotheosis or the thing that the universal horror movies were building up to that point i feel like when you watch all the universal horror movies up to that point all of them are kind of accumulating just a little bit more style 
uh, whether it's like Edgar G. Elmer's The Black Cat right. or something like that. And then this is the one that finally puts it all together. Before then it, d- it uh, dovetailed into cheapness of like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Yeah, but I like those movies too. <laughs> yeah. Dracula's Daughter. Although that's another good sort of queerish universal monster movie. If I may make a case for one more whale film, mm. the, speaking of H.G. Wells. Ugh, Invisible uh, Man. I love the Invisible love Man. Love it, yeah. Uh, a great joke on the audience too. It's like, oh, starring Claude Rains and you never see him until the last <laughs> yeah. scene of the movie. But uh, that's a great, like, sort of a great vocal performance, I guess, by Claude Rains. Um, and also a movie that at a time in France where you weren't, were only allowed to show X number of uh, undubbed uh, English language films, they said that, you know, come show The Invisible Man. It's of high artistic merit. <laughs> yeah, they made uh, a rule that they could show it more time. So an- another case, you know, Whale was kind of uh, an auteur subject in France before the uh, Hitchcock or Hawks or these characters. What I noticed about The Invisible Man, even the first time that I watched it, was that when you think of that character, you imagine a kind of benign universal monster. It's like, oh, it's The Invisible Man. Like, what does he do? But The Invisible Man has the highest body count of any of the Universal and monsters. he loves it. He, he he's, loves he's yeah. like this, like giddy gentleman <laughs> murderer. He, he likes fucking with people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like and just like the comedic police sergeant is then strangled by the Invisible Man on screen. Yeah, and, and you're I mean, like, whoa! You think of the Verhoeven remake with Kevin Bacon, and it's sort of like, <laughs> and it's such a weird movie, especially for a Verhoeven film to be sort of somber and about like, oh my god, the pangs of the Invisible Man. Yeah. Uh, like this movie is basically just Claude Rains, or rather a collection of bandages that loosely look like Claude Rains running around and like throwing plates and in this sort of like arch Daffy Duck mode or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have anything else to say about The Invisible Man but has anybody seen Showboat? No. No. I, I looked for I looked to watch it I'm like two hours and 40 minutes. The definitive version he did the definitive version of Showboat. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's the one that finally like uh, broke the stranglehold that horror had over him because it was a huge hit but mm. it was also I guess the beginning of the end of his career. And life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I checked out um, Remember Last Night, the movie he made right after Bride of Frankenstein. And it's like just kind of a giddy kind of screwball comedy where a bunch of rich people who literally have the most excessive night of their life, which includes shooting cannons that on their property at a boat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then something happened and they have to figure out like the mystery of what happened the night before. And like you were talking about in Bride, the really quick editing pattern is definitely prevalent in Remember Last Night. We should add, too, I guess, I mean, we kind of brought it up, but his life story, or the last days of his life were adapted as a sort of not great film called Gods and Monsters, where Ian McKellen plays James Whale, trying to seduce his, like, square-jawed gardener played by Brendan Fraser. This was Brendan Fraser's kind of, like, bid for... Was he uh, nominated for an Academy Award for this McKellen movie? McKellen was. Not okay. Brendan, <laughs> yeah. Brendan but this, but yeah, this was his. You know, I've done George of the Jungle, I've done uh, Encino Man. This is my my bid for Oscar glory. And you're not a fan of that movie, John? Gods and Monsters? No, I don't like. Uh, well, I mean, I have a, I have a vision of my head of James Whale's private life that's like a lot more decadent and sort of Kenneth Angry Hollywood Babylon. <laughs> so like, not sad, like it's presented. Yeah, no, in Gods like, and like him having these sort of like weird uh, Brian Singerish pool but, parties. But that, there is there is a flashback in Gods and Monsters of one of his Brian Singerish pool parties. That's true. Yeah, but I mean, I think just the image of him is sort of. Uh, 
uh, leering and collected, sort of trying to seduce this young man, like something out of uh, Douglas Sirk. Yeah. Uh, I, I like that image of Whale a lot less than sort of the stately pervert image. I like that scene early on when uh, somebody's interviewing him and he says, uh, you can ask me whatever you want, but for every question, you have to remove one article of clothing. Yeah. That's a pretty good scene. Yeah, strip interviewing. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think led to Whale's demise in the industry and... Life. <laughs> I mean, yeah, life. Well, like, to be honest, uh, the road home, like, he was really annoyed yeah. and, like, devastated, personally devastated that the movie got, like, taken out of his hands and sort of lost faith in Hollywood. The other thing is just, like, diminishing returns. I mean, this is a guy who started off with, uh, for all intents and purposes, with Frankenstein that made $12 million. Uh, it's hard not to have diminishing returns off that. Mm-hmm. We should, you know, well, I don't know what that is adjusted for inflation. Let's say Avatar $120 billion. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Lots of money. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, so, you know, the movie started making less and less money. And as you guys sort of mentioned, the Universal Monster cycle kind of lapsed into mm-hmm. decadence and parody. Uh, of course, the Hayes Code came in. Uh, Carl Lemley and his son, Carl Lemley Jr., stopped running Universal Studios because they kind of lost money. These were sort of studio heads who afforded their directors a lot of latitude, uh, where the people who took it over were not quite so latitude <laughs> You know, I heard that uh, Boris Karloff, after Son of Frankenstein, refused to play the character anymore because he thought the character was becoming a gimmick, uh, which is interesting because he w- Karloff was certainly like no stranger to taking parts just for the money and, and do- <laughs> doing hack work. And I mean, he even shows up in, um, I think it's House of Frankenstein as a mad doctor, but not as the monster. He showed up as Frankenstein on some TV show, didn't he? Like years and oh, years. Oh, did he? And years well, later. I mean, I guess yeah. it's different, but I guess like that's just one character that he held uh, sacred for one reason or another. Uh, it is. I, I know that you brought Karloff up earlier, but I mean, it is a really good performance. I mean, that. that <laughs> oh, no, no, we're done. We're done. That's it. That's all we're talking. <laughs> but I was just about. thinking of that scene. Did you guys talk like, about targets on the Bogdanovich episode? Yeah, 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 yeah. talking about yeah. targets. Yeah, yeah, the Karloff podcast. More and more. <laughs> we love Boris Karloff. <laughs> but I'm just thinking of that scene in the first one where he's like playing with the little girl by the pool and like he's so kind of sweet and, and mm-hmm. earnest uh, very naturalistic uh, until he picks her up and throws her in the river and then runs off I think probably the biggest flaw of the first one is that they invented that stuff of him having the abnormal brain yeah I don't like that um, right. they don't mention it in Bride do they but they mention they it in Su- I watched Son of Frankenstein and um, his son keeps going like the monster would have worked if it didn't have an abnormal brain well the Carlos monster is almost so incidental in Bride of Frankenstein even more incidental is the bride who's in the yeah. movie for about two four minutes. minutes. Um, although to get to that note, one thing I love about the movie is despite it's sort of ostensible horror and the comedy of it, it has this beautiful tragic ending where mm. the monster, because the bride rejects him, just kills everybody. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I remember I had a student in my class saying, I don't get where the monster blew up the monster. <laughs> I imagine he's in like baggy jeans and baseball yeah, caps. He's, he's, a, he's an Why did yeah. Hamlet just kill Claudius in the first act? Uh, and I was like, listen, he's he's rejected because like nobody loves him, man. I'm like, you'll get there someday. <laughs> but, uh, you know, true enough. I mean, I think there's something... Uh, not profound. It's sweet in a way that yeah. he's so angry and pissed off that like he actually 
exacts the revenge that people think that he's enacting in the first movie of killing yeah. this child, except it's all because of his own like self-loathing. Today, the monster would probably like dox her online. <laughs> yeah. Which, what's your problem, bitch? Uh, yeah. This is what happens when you try to be a nice guy. Yeah. Well, do you think so? James Whale brought his stamp to Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and just going a little bit more broadly, are you a fan of like the Frankenstein story and the way that it's been told a million times? I don't give a shit about Frankenstein that much really <laughs> I mean I, there's there's certain iterations of it that are good I mean Kenneth Brogdon with Frankenstein <sighs> that's De, De Niro that's <laughs> trash the one that I really love is uh, the X-Files episode postmodern Prometheus yes uh, which is a good Frankenstein story I mean you Frankenstein know, Conquers the World from Toho is pretty good. Uh, yeah, that's a huge giant in that yeah. one. The Golem, the, the original uh, Frankenstein story. I, I think uh, we as a culture, you know, every now and then, every few years, they try to revive Frankenstein in a movie. And I and Was that Aaron Eckhart? Aaron Eckhart. And also last year, John Landis's son made that, that oh, film. Bernard Rose made a Frankenstein movie, too. Um, oh yeah, the director of Candyman and stuff like that. Well, like it's a well that people but, keep drawing. But, from. Or you know, there's the Branagh one, and it just keeps failing. And I think it might be because like we as a culture have just moved past the concerns of Frankenstein. I right. mean, that whole playing God stuff just doesn't interest people anymore. Uh, or if it does, it has to be like a Black Mirror episode about your iPhone being evil. You know? Yeah. Like, it's not like we're past sort of techno paranoia. Yeah. We're just past like people don't we play care God about, so regularly yeah, yeah. that it's no longer an apprehension. And after Stephen. Summers made Van Helsing and made the definitive Frankenstein. Yeah. Well, if we I, felt we didn't have to do it. If I may else. say, though, the Warhol uh, Flesh for Frankenstein. Oh, great, great movie. movie. Yeah, yeah. Very fun movie. Yeah. But Dracula keeps going on, I guess, because like sex never stops being of interest to people. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's true. Frankenstein's not sexy, yeah. uh, as we learn at the end of Bride. Uh, before we go, uh, we should mention that John has a new book out. It's called uh, This is a Book About the Kids in the Hall from ECW Press. It's about the kids in the hall. Yeah. The comedy troupe. Yeah. So, you know, if that sounds like something you'd like to read, maybe. <laughs> Whoa, what a, what a generous book. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, it's the definitive book on the kids in the hall. According if to the you jacket. Even yeah. like kids in the hall, you better fucking read it. Whoa, right. Justin. Um, <laughs> yeah. So if I didn't, I come off as a total moron uh, speaking aloud. <laughs> yeah. So what are we doing next week, Will? Larry Cohen. Oh, so excited. Let's do it. Yeah. Love Larry You're Cohen. You're a Larry Cohen fan too, right? Cue the wing serpent, baby. Oh, yeah. All right. So Larry Cohen, for people that don't know, is one of the, I don't know, best filmmakers. It's not the most. He's well, not popular. Well, sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I could name a few who are better, but... <laughs> I was going to then um, drop him in as like an independent producer writer who does sure. all his own stuff. You know, if I ever had to do an 80s consumerism quadruple bill, <laughs> it would be Larry Cohen's The Stuff, Repo Man, They Live, and Society. Just do them all back to back oh, to back. That's a great quadruple bill. <laughs> nice. So what movies do we want to do, Will? Ah, uh, let's just do all of them. Like, are we seriously going to like... No, okay, we're not going to okay, ourselves. Let's just say, let's just say uh, The Stuff and Cue the Winged Serpent. Sure, like the easy ones, but me and Will are freaking gonna watch Return to Salem's Lost. See China and Die has been on my laptop for a year now. The, did he do two movies about cell phones killing you? Oh, he did three or four, <laughs> didn't he? He did Phone Booth, Messages Deleted, and the one with Kim Basinger. What about Captivity? Isn't that a cell phone related uh, he, one? Or Oh, maybe. You guys are gonna do Only God Told Me To, one of uh, <laughs> yeah. the strangest films ever made? Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, uh, full Moon High. We're just going to do them all. Yo, have you seen uh, The Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover? I have not seen uh, that movie, and this is the so reason good. to watch it. So good. But it'll be mostly spooky-related, because yeah. it's Shocktober and everything. Yeah. All right, so that's what we're going to be doing next week. Thank you very much, John Samuel, Thanks for, for having coming me. on the podcast. Thanks for listening. All right, well, um, now I forget how we end the podcast. <laughs> My name is Justin till- McLeod. I'm Will Sloud. <laughs> I'm John Semley. <laughs> oh, sorry, I said on my iPhone. I'm John. Bye. <laughs>
Uh, yeah, it, it's terrible. But. Like if, if Porky's was about the making of Porky's. Yeah, basically. <laughs> that was a weird subgenre where it's like all people who want to get into pornography that end up, you see their story, like Blue Movie and stuff like that. I don't know, you would know this better than I would, Will. Autofocus. <laughs> Autofocus. Oh, the classic Paul Schrader, Greg Kinnear picture. But I also love that uh, Herschel Gordon-Lewis reinvented himself as like uh, a marketing guru and he's written something like 20 textbooks that you can buy on his website, you know, how, how to sell your wares or whatever. Well, did you hear the sad story when some dude made Blood Feast 2 and Herschel was like, hey, can I help direct or something like that? And they were like, no, we well, don't want he, you involved he, at he all. He did direct a Blood Feast 2, actually. But basically, the way he said it was that he had hardly anything to do with it. Basically, somebody else put the movie together and just said, you want to direct it? And he, you know, sat in a chair and said, <laughs> cut in action. But he is one of these, like, William Castle-ish figures in terms of getting asses in the seats by whatever means necessary. I mean, yeah. maybe not in the William Castle way of selling you a life insurance policy in the event that the tingler scares <laughs> yeah. you to death. Uh, but, you know, Hitchcock was like that, too, even at the sort of higher end of the spectrum. These people who sort of would do anything to get you into the cinema. Well, Herschel Gordon-Lewis is one of those filmmakers that when you're getting into horror, you're like, you gotta see these guys, this guy. Like, he was giving you something that you couldn't see before then. But it's, it's way more fun. I mean, when you watch the contemporary equivalent of those movies, like, sort of gore, splattery movies now, Dimension Extreme, I mean, it's so banal and crappy and self-serious. I mean, this is a guy who knew how to, you know, vivisect a sheep and put a smile on your face. <laughs> Do you remember that scene in A Color Me Blood Red when it's, a, it's been so 